to Zephaniah. We return today to the first chapter. This is at page 788 in your pew Bible, if that's helpful for you. To the prophet Zephaniah, we turn again, picking up where we left off last time at verse 4. Zephaniah, may I uh, remind you, has started off with a pronouncement of judgment that rings universal in its scope with punishment for the wicked. But now, beginning in verse 4, he quickly turns his eyes where? Not to the wicked world, not to Assyria or the wicked nations all around Judah, though he will have plenty to say about them. No, Zephaniah lowers his sights on Judah and particularly on Jerusalem. In other words, to quote quote the Apostle Peter, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. But why? What is the problem? What have God's people done? And if it's happened, if it happened then, could it happen now? Could the church in our own day, in our own age, even on this Sabbath day, be bringing upon herself the just judgment of God, even as she did so long ago in Jerusalem? Don't be too quick in your hearts to say, well, it couldn't be happening here. Or now, remember that they could hardly believe it in their own day. This is Jerusalem, they said. (laughs) They assured themselves. Remember in Jeremiah? This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They had deceived themselves into thinking that God could not possibly bring chastisement, even judgment upon his own people. In the same way, modern American evangelicals have become far too familiar with God, giving little to no thought at all to the fact that God has not changed, not one whit. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the things that angered him 2,600 years ago, and they still anger him today. Let's pray. Father, we come to a solemn word. But we thank you for everything that your word has to say to us, and we pray for the grace to receive it, receive it well. We would be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. We would see ourselves obedient to your word. So we pray that you will take this active word, sharper than any double-edged sword, to do its perfect work in us that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Zephaniah 1, verses 4 through 6. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who seek not the Lord or inquire of Him. What 
I ask you, could cause God's anger to rise so terribly, so devastatingly, against his own daughter, Judah, against his own people? I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place. This is the language of devastating judgment. This is the language God used to describe the terror that was to be released on Egypt in the plagues and the death of every firstborn. Stretch out my hand. At one time in an awe-inspiring demonstration of His power, God had delivered His people from their bondage with His mighty hand and outstretched arm. But now His hand was to be stretched out against the very people called by His name. What is more, Zephaniah continues, they will be cut off. This is terrifying language. Utter gloom. Why? Well, Zephaniah gives many reasons, but he begins with this particular one, the chief of them. It's their worship. It's their worship. It, it, it is particular that their participation in worship that is unfaithful, that is carried out not according to the dictates of the Scripture. Worship that is syncretistic, that is mixed with other gods. It's for their infidelity in the sanctuary that God's anger is aroused against them. The, the fundamental fault and failure here is false worship. And was, what was faulty about their worship? Well, they were no longer, I mean, I ask you, were they no longer calling upon God? Is that the problem? Well, some of them weren't. We know that from verse 6. Some of them had turned their back on the Lord completely. But the prior offense was this. Their worship had become mixed. Okay, they, they still talked about the Lord, and they still tossed His name in there in their prayers. God was worshipped after a fashion, but He was worshipped side by side with Baal. And while they still bowed down to and swore their worship to the Lord, verse 5, yet they swore by Milcom as well. John Calvin in his commentary notes that they did not openly reject the worship of the true God, but formed such a mixture for themselves that they joined the true God with their idols. It seems a sufficient excuse, he observes, a, a sufficient excuse to foolish men that they retain the name of God and they confidently boast that the true God is worshipped by them. And yet we see that they mix together with this worship many of the delusions of Satan. Now Calvin could draw direct application and did from Zephaniah to the corrupt worship practices of the church of his own day. They still worship God, at least they claim to. But alongside him they worshiped idols too. Saints and relics and a whole vast troop of deities, he calls them, were worshiped alongside God. You see, the great reformation in which Calvin took part was in a true sense primarily the reformation of the church's worship. Calvin understood what the Bible is everywhere and always proclaiming. 
that the church lives out of her worship. She does. The church lives out of her worship. Reform her worship and you reform her life. Geneva's wickedness before the Reformation, her lawlessness was addressed when her worship was brought back under the authority of God's Word and filled with those things and only those things that God had either clearly prescribed or by direct command or could be clearly deduced from the Word of God, including the careful and courageous preaching of the Word in that worship. And now we've come to another day of crisis in the church. We have. The American evangelical descendants of the Reformation have once again become small, sin and scandal ridden. And it's no accident that worship has concurrently been in serious, serious decline. And you say, I don't know any American evangelicals are worshiping Baal. We're not swearing by Milcom these days. We don't bring an Asherah pole into the sanctuary. Perhaps not, but remember that idolatry takes a lot of different forms. Our hearts are, as the Reformers used to put it, our hearts are idolorum fabricum, idol factories. We are bent on producing idols. But no idol is more attractive for our worship nor more subtly introduced into it than this, this one idol. You know his name, don't you? Man. Baalism is not the idolatry du jour. Humanism is. Worship is more and more determined by, planned, and executed according to what pleases the flesh. What, what makes people feel good? What will attract unbelievers into the church? Moderns are not asking, what has God commanded? But rather, what do contemporary people like? And as you know, when you start by asking the wrong question, you are absolutely certain to come to the wrong answer. Worship, true, true worship, is always about a party of one. It's directed solely toward and governed directly by the one God, the one true and triune God as he has revealed himself and his worship requirements in the Bible. Alas, much, much of what's now advancing in the church under the banner of contemporary worship is really a thinly veiled idolatry, a seeking after the pleasure of men. Oh, yeah, still calling on the name of God, sure. Well, ministers who design that, these worship services today, they'd protest, they'd howl to high heaven, just as they probably did in Zephaniah's day, that oh, we're worshiping God. And in fact, it's not a theocentric worship that they're leading, but an anthropocentric worship. That is not a God-centered worship, but a man-centered worship with a liberal smattering of God's name thrown in for good measure. This trend has been going on for quite some time. 
remember 20 years ago reading Dr. Terry Johnson in Table Talk magazine, writing that the trajectory of contemporary worship is not encouraging for those who wish to remain God-centered. Another astute observer notes that congregational worship, quote, has taken the form of something done for an audience as opposed to something done by a congregation. Stages, theater seating, programs, special music, the adoption of posture and gestures of secular performers by worship leaders all suggest that the priority of the contemporary church is entertaining congregations, not worshiping God. End quote. Well, I hope and pray with all my heart that in our worship, we're worshiping God and, and God alone as a congregation. And what is more, that we may be diligent always to keep it that way, to see that our worship is not only directed toward, but governed by the commandments of God. We've got to be diligent in this area, dear flock. This, this has to be our first concern as a congregation for several reasons. I'll just mention three. For one, we must be diligent in defending and preserving and reforming true worship because, you see, the shift away from faithful worship, it's very subtle. It's very subtle. Jerusalem's idolatrous worship and our own contemporary forms of idolatrous worship did not appear overnight. Now, they slowly evolved. The door opened a crack at first. A little compromise here, a little, you know, good idea. Okay, maybe it's not in the Bible, but let's do it. It's a great idea, right? The worship in Zephaniah's day and in Calvin's day and much of the worship in our own day was and is the product of slow and subtle decline. Zephaniah and the reformer king Josiah had to undo not just years, but decades, even centuries of liturgical decline. That is how long it took for the worship to become as thoroughly idolatrous as it had. The slide into idolatry is rarely fast. It's usually slow and subtle. The second reason why we must be diligent in defending and preserving and reforming true worship is the centrality of worship in the human life and experience and its fundamental significance to shaping a people. The Bible bears witness everywhere to this in its pages to the nature of man as homo adorans, worshiping man. And if the Bible teaches us anything, it teaches that as man worships, so he lives. Or to bring it home, as we worship, so we live. Idolatrous in worship, idolatrous in life. Let's look at the church in Zephaniah's day. Their idolatry was not isolated just to the sanctuary, was it? They took it home. They took it to go, you know from the sanctuary to their homes. Verse 5, we read that they bowed down on their roofs to the hosts of heaven. 
In other words, they went home and went up on the rooftop to worship the stars and the moon there too. Idolatrous worshipers in the sanctuary, idolatrous worshipers at home. And true to form, the worship of man in modern evangelical churches has translated into the worship of man at home. Endless hours of entertainment. The love of pleasure. The full throttle pursuit of luxury, of personal comfort. And you can describe it in any number of ways that all come down to the worship of man have become the order of the day. Sacrifice, real, true sacrifice and self-denial for the sake of the kingdom of God has, has become more and more remarkable, hasn't it, in the daily rounds of the lives of the typically American evangelical today, precisely because it is so rare and rarely required in so much of what passes for worship these days. This is the great emphasis of the prophets in Scripture. The greatest sin, the greatest evil of the people of God, the sin that leads to every other sin over and again throughout the Scriptures is the worship of false gods or the worship of the true God in false ways. By false worship, every other aspect of the church's life was corrupted. You've seen this in the Bible. Her care for the poor and the needy. Her service to neighbor and stranger. Her faithfulness in marriage and in parenting. Her diligence in labor and in love. Her moral failures were traced to her liturgical failures. Just so our lives today, they're... They're inevitably shaped by what's going on here, even now, in the sanctuary. In Psalm 115, one of those typically scathing denunciations of the false worship of the ancient Near East, the very worship that was beguiling the people of God here, in that psalm we read this, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Such was the fate of the people of God in Zephaniah's day. They became like the idols they worshipped. Spiritually lifeless, blind, deaf, dumb, powerless. How much more must that not be the case in our own day when the idol today is man? Human beings becoming more and more what they worship and never rising higher than themselves, instead becoming only more and more and more like themselves. That's the terrible irony of modern worship, 
designed for the sake of man and attracting man according to the imaginations of man. It becomes a tragic cycle, doesn't it, of spiritual blindness, deafness, and powerlessness. It's like a dog that keeps chasing its tail round and round and round. That's the worship directed by man, for man, to man. And a third reason why we must, and final, why we must be diligent in defending and preserving and reforming true worship is that there is an entire class of people who are entirely bent on distorting and twisting it, twisting worship. Now, who could those people be? From whence comes this bent on idolatrous worship? Well, hang on to your seats for the answer. It's the ministers. It's the ministers. No other group of people in all of history have single-handedly done more harm to the people of God and to the worship of God, twisted more godly worship into heinous idolatry than the very ones who are entrusted with its leadership. The church's ministers. Which is precisely why the blame for false worship in Scripture is always squarely laid at their feet. Notice who will feel the brunt of God's anger for the idolatry of God's people in verse 4. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. It's precisely those who have been given the duty of leading God's people in worship who are called out from God's people for special judgment on this matter and to have their very names erased from history's memory along with themselves as their punishment. I don't know if any minister worth his salt who can read a passage like this and not grimace at the thought of the responsibility he must bear for the worship that he leads of God's people. It's no wonder why the late Dr. Robert Rayburn, the founding president of our Covenant College and Seminary, taught his ministerial students that for all the hours they must spend in preparation of their sermons, they must spend just as much energy in the preparation of the entire worship service. Oh, the people suffer too, yes. For their idolatry, of course they do. All the inhabitants of Jerusalem fall under the judgment of God, according to verse 4. And we know from Jeremiah that though the ministers, yes, it was the ministers who led that congregation into idolatry. In fact, as Jeremiah points out, they loved it that way. Still, it is particularly the ministers, isn't it? It comes back to them who will give answer for the worship of his people. So I plead with you now, pray for your minister. Pray that he will always lead you in faithful worship, whoever he is. Pray that he will not be tempted to lead you into any form of idolatry. Whether that idol be made of gold and stone or of flesh and blood makes no difference. And to myself, 
to all of my brothers in ministry who must design and plan and lead and direct the worship of God, I ask for what must we give answer to God at the great assize to come when we stand, my fellow pastors, at the seat, at the judgment seat of God. And then I say finally to all of you in the hearing of my voice right now, do not rest. Leave hearth and home if you must until you find a place where you and your children may worship God in spirit and truth with reverence and awe. Don't give up. Don't give up until you find such a place of worship and there to offer worship that is centered on God and that is governed by His commandments. For I tell you, nothing, nothing in all the world will shape and determine the rest of your life and the lives of your children more than this, the worship you give in the house of the Lord.